Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the planet. Welcome back to Creation Conversations, uh, where we are minus a John this evening, um, because he's uh, on, a, on a brief little ministry trip uh, up north in Australia, um, even further north than his, um, in Queensland, where he's uh, currently teaching a men's breakfast. So uh, do pray for him. Uh, we caught up with him just uh, an hour or so ago, and he's... Uh, it was was at the time busily preparing for this uh, ministry trip so uh, do keep him in prayer as he teaches while we are teaching effectively on creation conversations this evening but we do have the rest of the team here which is uh, which is great and um i'm i'm not doing too bad myself although i have just sort of recovered from uh, a fluey coldy something or other which uh, may uh, you may have to excuse me if i have to sort of uh, mute myself to <laughs> to go and clear my throat but um how are the rest of us uh, guys doing today? Diane, what's it like where you are? Oh, well, it's bright and sunny here. After all, it is still summer here. Uh, so I'm sitting here with the, with the windows open. So if you do hear any squeaks and squawks, uh, they might be from the birds that are yeah. outside in, in, in the garden and, and the very, feel, around here. Yes. We can feel very jealous because it's sort of dark and cold at the moment in England. <laughs> so, <laughs> there we are. Well, you're even further south. You're, in fact, you're the southmost of all of us, Craig. How's it, how's it down there? Yeah, greetings, everyone, from Tasmania. It's uh, yeah, beautiful down here today and rearing to go. Good stuff, good stuff. Yeah. Glenn. Uh, over in the states oh it's beautiful sun's been out you know it's our winter time it should be cold should be miserable um but it's been beautiful the grandkids have been playing outside in the hammock in shorts and short sleeve shirts it's not like any winter i've experienced in a while well it sounds like global warming has a sort of hit everywhere other than england at the moment but um that's <laughs> that's one of the risks of that isn't it how are you doing sam I'm all right. Yeah, chucking along. Um, I'll do a little bit of an update in a in a in a couple of minutes. But uh, yeah, I'm doing well. Absolutely. Yeah. Now it's been a busy week for all of us. I think I've sort of come off the back of um, a ministry trip, and I've launched straight into uh, some kids ministry. It's half term here, uh, February half term here in the UK, and we had a really four really good sessions, and we're having another session on uh, on Sunday uh, with all the local kids down at our church a lot of unchurched uh, young people coming and of course they bring their parents which is even better uh, a lot of non-christians so we get a great chance of taking them through the gospel and teaching them some important stuff which is wonderful and uh, the great thing that i love about um the uh, the the holy trinity kids program is that it's uh, it's very much gospel focused so we're working through mm. uh, the book of exodus and it, every day we have a, a a point a pyramid pointer which points to jesus christ and uh, where the story uh, where the exodus itself actually points to jesus christ whether it's moses or the plagues or the blood of the lamb or the pillars of fire and smoke so it's been great uh, it's been great to get involved with that but it is very busy sort of up very early and going all the way through and because it is half term we've actually had the museum open every day um with the exception of um the other day yesterday uh, because i wasn't really well enough to 
to be able to cope with it. But it has been some good blessings, and there has been uh, lots of stuff that's come out of that, so that's really good. Um, Diane, uh, how have you been in regards to, to ministry? Are you uh, busy with uh, newsletters and stuff like that? Yes, we'll uh, probably send out an email, another email newsletter in the coming weeks. So uh, interesting things to report. John will have some interesting things from his trip up north and, um, and we keep our watching brief on what's going on in the, in the science news and we look for the, for the odd things as well as, uh, as, well as the um, uh, more uh, basic general, general science things, things that are, that are memorable. Uh, and we have yeah. bits of everything from, uh, well, we're looking at the origin of life today. Um, yeah. There's been a bit of that. Uh, they, they keep on looking for life's molecules in all sorts of strange places like the moons of Jupiter and uh, galaxies far, far away with this new telescope that uh, NASA have put out there. Uh, so that, that's a bit relevant to, to what we're doing today. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, good stuff. Glenn, how have you been with ministry uh, over, in, over in the States? The uh, radio broadcasts are going really good, and this week I was able to mm. rock and record uh, two more sessions, both of those on macroevolution. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been a good week. Good stuff. In fact, um, you were saying earlier um, that uh, we're actually going to be showing a, a special uh, program on the broadcast tonight, which you've used part of in your radio yes. programs, the, uh, the the interview with Professor Ed Neeland, which we'll talk a little bit about later because we're actually going to be showing that a little later today uh, in lieu of John not being here. But it's, uh, it's a really great and fascinating program. And mm -hmm. uh, I didn't realize until today that it's not actually... Uh, particularly available to watch anymore, uh, not being on any of our streaming sites or download sites or anything like that. So um, we're in for a treat when we play that a little bit later. So that's that's great. Sam, how about a uh, a brief uh, update from you, ministry-wise, and then we'll I think uh, Craig has got some slides and a rather uh, rather interesting report for us. Yeah, sure. Um, so for those of you who have been uh, waiting with bated breath uh, about my Bible journey challenge. It's going well. I'm currently on Genesis 30, 31, um, chucking through slowly. Just read a really weird story about um, uh, hairy sons and offerings. Um, uh, I'm mildly confused by that story, but uh, never mind, still plodding on. Um, but in other news as well, um, I have a guest appearance coming up next week uh, on uh, Standing for Truth. So it's just me. Uh, there we go. That's the thumbnail for it. Um, so we're going to be discussing multiple topics. And um, if you tune in, I'll be giving an update on the, uh, the Genesis Project and giving you a, a bit more of a behind the scenes sort of um, discussion on how uh, things like this are like movies like this are made, uh, what technologies we're using, how we're implementing them. Um, and I'm also going to be talking about my, uh, my book that I'm currently writing as well. Um, I, I know it's, it's a bit of a, a strange, um, strange thing for me, the tech guy to be writing a book, but there you go. Um, I'm writing a book about, um, the theological, um, well, it's a theological analysis of the Godzilla and Jurassic Park films um it's really really interesting what it is to me at least um and i really can't wait for you guys to read it so um fingers crossed watch this space it should hopefully be coming out um by the middle of this year 
if all actually goes. science fiction does have some interesting theological implications mm. and and origins so it's, uh, it's quite yeah, an interesting definitely. topic yes yeah no, good stuff good stuff all right craig over to you for the first sort of presentation because you've got a rather interesting thing to uh share with us so uh we'll put your slides up but go for it yeah well i've had uh an article we've had in the local newspaper, The Examiner, which covers basically northern Tasmania, by Gary Linnell, who is a well-known journalist in Australia, who's been the editor of some of the major newspapers in the country. And he's written this article, Give Science a Chance to Outrun Ignorance. And it's effectively about creationists, although other uh, science, so-called science deniers like uh, climate science and so on. Um, and he starts off his article with, they were among the happiest and friendliest people I had met, so it seemed a pity to discover they also ra ranked among the stupidest, which uh, I'm not sure that is actually a word, but uh, might be, uh, the stupidest, and he's referring to creationists. Um, he, he brings up a whole bunch of things in there, but he, he went to basically a creationist camp at some point and uh, he's claiming things like they tore apart the work of millions of scientists and centuries of rigorous observation and testing which of course anyone that's close to this subject knows is not true and just another little clip there he also finishes his article off with you are not entitled to your opinion he said well um, he's quoting someone else who he's agreeing with that you're not entitled to your opinion you're entitled to your informed opinion no one is entitled to be ignorant and not even the stupid so of course that's a sort of thing that uh, might rankle the feathers of some of us watching this show today including myself and uh, it was good that some of you had some input into my response because otherwise i would have been less than gracious i think but um the good news is that we were able to get a full page response last sunday and uh, I didn't think I had much of a chance. And um, I know Diane was very sceptical that we'd get in the paper, um, quite reasonably, actually. But we did get a full-page response. And the some of the things that I covered are just written there on the right there, um, basically calling your opponents stupid is no argument at all. It's a very sloppy argument. And it's a, it's a appeal to authority basically which is no argument at all um I highlighted that science is built on the work of many creation believers and that they in fact have a religious belief system on, on naturalistic uniformitarianism um which we could talk about sometime if people don't know what that is but that's basically a blind religion we're going to be talking about that a little bit more today and i even gave the guy an invite to come and have a look at some of the evidence in our museum or if he felt inclined to debate us about the so-called irrefutable proofs of evolution that he referred to. Mm -hmm. So that was a real uh, little win, I suppose, in our local neck of the woods to have a full page response article. It was great that the editor felt that we had that, uh, that right to respond. So that's, uh, it's one of the things we've been doing. Uh, we can go back, back to me, Joe, We've also had a, a couple of other things going on. We've had a lot of people coming through the museum um, in the last week or two, and it's been a lot of unchurched people. So we've had great opportunities to 
uh, present to them some of the evidence. Uh, I was also at a conference earlier this week, perhaps a little bit controversial to talk in too much detail on mm. online at the moment, but it was about mm. the LGBTQIA plus issue in the church. And mm. um, that was being presented down there in Hobart. So we went to that for a couple of days. Uh, really good news out of that from a conservative perspective in that it's not going anywhere in the Baptist movement in this state at this stage. Mm. Oh, good but stuff. That's, that's about me, Joe. Great stuff. Thanks for that, Craig. And, yeah, it's important to um, <clears throat> maybe with a bit of grace, but certainly, uh, certainly confront <laughs> quitting like this so no that that's that's good stuff good stuff all right well our main topic tonight is the is the origin of life so we're going to move on to to that now um i have what uh, a little stone here let's see if i put myself up to full screen here hmm. so we can see there we go hopefully it comes into into focus how well it will i'm not entirely sure but we'll see too close doesn't want to, does it? There we are. That's a little bit. That's better. Yeah, a little, a little bit better. Anyway, uh, hopefully you can see, even if it's slightly blurred, you can see the kind of striations and sort of the uh, layers and the the different sort of squiggles all the way through the uh, the rock. This is known as uh, Archean Butterstone, and uh, the the squiggles and the wiggles are one of the thinking is that this is representative of some <laughs> of the earliest forms of life. Um, particularly some form of uh, stromatolytic rock, so some form of sort of algal rock, about two and a half to three billion years ago. Uh, and this is supposed to be some of the earliest forms of life on planet Earth. So it's sort of relevant to what we're discussing today, which is the, um, the origin of life. And uh, how would you actually get stuff like this in the first place so uh, while my camera has decided to stay completely out of focus mm -hmm. i'm going to come back like this and uh, uh to begin with we're going to go over to um glenn uh, to have a, a little bit of a, a discussion with some slides that he's got and then we're going to have um uh, a, a, a listen to Diane Eager. Then we'll take some questions. And after which, uh, we've got a little bit of a, a, a treat because um, John Mackay is not with us. We have an interview with John, which we'll be showing, or rather it's an interview with um, Professor Ed Neeland um, from uh, University uh, British Columbia, I believe, in Canada. And uh, it'll be, uh, uh, it's a really, really great program. And I know that uh, you've used it as well, uh, Glenn, in, in some of your radio programs and stuff like that. So it's really great. So plenty of chance for discussion and chat and keep the questions coming into the chat, uh, of course, because we will come to them later. And if we don't get to come and cover them all, then we will certainly come to them in our special Q&A session uh, in the future. So, um, Glenn, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to get the uh, slides up for you on the screen here. And uh, Sam, if I can let you... Uh, actually get them up full screen and everything so basically over to you glenn and just shout when you want the next slide okay so this is really the question can life self-generate this is one of the basic tenets of, of evolution can life center self-generate from non-life you can go to the next slide and that's uh abiogenesis which just means the genesis the the creation the beginning of life from non-life and is that possible you go to the next slide it it's one of the tenets of evolution that 
it's really been well tested. And the classic experiments to, to do this was the Miller-Urey experiments, which we're going to talk about. But I like this quote from uh, Morris and Sherman, uh, that they said that the idea that life arose spontaneous from non-living chemicals is easily the most difficult hurdle for evolution to overcome. That life self-generated through purely natural processes stretches credibility. If any scenario is impossible in science and illogical in thought, the origin of life from non-life is it. And here's a quote I use from a, a Nobel laureate, George Wald, who stated, I do not want to believe in God. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation. And the reason it's known to be spontaneous, I mean, to be impossible, scientifically impossible, is because it's been so well tested and shown. So you can go to the next one. Slide. <clears throat> this is just a diagram of the experiments that were done in the, in the 50s and carried on for, for years and years in which they had a flask that they filled with what would be this primordial soup this primordial pool of chemicals. They had methane, water, ammonia, hydrogen, all sealed inside the flask. The flask was then heated, and they also had uh, electrodes constantly given a, a shock to it. And then afterwards, they immediately treated it with mercuric chloride uh, to prevent microbial growth, and then barium hydroxide and sulfuric acid, and then it was evaporated to remove impurities. And they were trying to create these living life. And what they were able to produce, they mixed chemicals together and they were able to produce chemicals. Um, they were not able to produce life. The video that we'll see later, and I think Diane's going to talk a good bit about it, is these chemicals that they produce that they will claim or then the origins that would produce life. Uh, but the truth is, is you'll see later that that's, that's not true. So it was not successful after many, many, many years trying to produce life from non-life. You can go to the next slide. Uh, no, I think I talked about that. Then, you know, the other evidence that's been tested a great deal, and I think Diane's going to talk about this as well, is Louis Pasteur, the father of bacteriology. He's the one who's really responsible for disproving this theory of spontaneous generation. At the time, the thought was, well, we, we know life spontaneous generates. And they, they would see it on cultures. They would see it in food that was left out. And he proposed that that wasn't life being produced from non-life, but it was contamination from dust and particles in the air that had life in it, that had bacteria in it. And so he did uh, many experiments that, that showed this and really came up with the law of biogenesis that living things only come from other living things. So I think that's all I've got. Um, basically, these ex experiments showed that it was impossible. You want to turn it over to Diane? That's good. Um, we've lost Sam, and I, my camera's still not um, 
focusing, but never mind. Uh, Diane, over to you. Fine. We'll get straight into uh, into Diane's session. Sam's laptop has just died. Um, oh, that's no good. He should he should be back in very very soon afterwards. But anyway, what we're going to do? We're going to go straight over to Diane now. I'm going to try and fix my camera um, now that I've not got slides up, and um, we will listen to Diane for a little bit uh, before taking some questions and going on from there. So, Diane, I'll put your slides up. There we are. Yes, thank uh, you. you. Yes. Um, well, thank you for that introduction, Glenn. That was uh, really good to remind people that uh, the origin of life is one of those things that is glossed over. But when people are confronted with it, you get statements like from a Nobel Prize winner saying, well, if I don't want to believe in God, I have to believe in the impossible. Mm. Uh, and we, we will come back to that. But let's have a look at uh, just very briefly a, a, a bit of history and then a bit more about these supposed chemicals that just spontaneously became life and how chemicals actually behave in the body um, today as we observe. Because if people are going to claim that they're scientific, well, then they have to uh, explain what we actually observe in the real world today. So the origin of life. Well, everyone associates the word origin with Darwin, of course. Um, and Darwin wrote a famous book called Origin of Species. But we have to remember that Darwin was a naturalist. He studied whole animals, whole plants. He was not really into biochemistry uh, or microscopic sort of structures. Um, not a lot was known about biochemistry in those days. It was just getting off the ground uh, in terms of a science, um, certainly microscopy in terms of looking at uh, microscopic sized things, individual cells um, was not as advanced as it is today. So Darwin was looking more at big picture type things. Um, and it's interesting that his contemporaries were not terribly impressed with his theory because of the issue of the origin of life. Uh, so here are a couple of Darwin's contemporaries. Glenn has mentioned Louis Pasteur, really important in the, in the history of science uh, and in the history of biology. And he was the one who disproved the spontaneous generation of life. There, there was a belief that life could just emerge from, from not long life because people observed things like worms just seem to uh, appear in the soil uh, or in uh, um, water that's, that's left around, um, mold and flies and things like that just to seem to appear. Uh, now, don't think that these people were stupid. Uh, if you didn't have a microscope, would you know where worms and molds and things came from? Um, so uh, Louis Pasteur did some very interesting experiments that actually disproved that uh, life came from non-life. And another contemporary uh, of, um, of Darwin, and remember these people were living in the same time in, in the 19th century, was Rudolf Birkwell. Um, who uh, did a lot of interesting study in pathology in terms of, of disease um, processes. But uh, he did study cells um, because my microscopes had well and truly been invented by then and people could study cells, not with the technical details that we have now. And he came up with a little summary um, 
in which he expressed in Latin as people did in these days, which basically meant that all cells come from other cells or all cells come from cells. The only way we get cells is from previously existing cells. But that, of course, leads to the problem, well, where did the first cell come from, if you're going to go back and back in time and uh, believe in, in evolution? Well, these days, life is found in nice, warm, wet places, and hence the obsession with trying to find water in outer space or on Mars or in the moons of Jupiter and places like that, um, because living things exist in water today, even things that live on land, of course, uh, the internal structure is water. We're all uh, a whole lot of big drips where <laughs> most of our body is water because our cells have to live in a watery environment. So hence the obsession with finding water in places beyond the earth, because if you believe that life is just chemistry, if you find the right kind of chemistry somewhere in outer space, well, life could evolve there because it all just happens by itself without any intervention from a creator. If you are coming from an atheistic point of view, uh, which that fellow who wrote the critical article uh, did in Tasmania and which the uh, Nobel Prize winner said, well, I don't believe in God, so I have to believe in what I can see is, is not possible. But um, <clears throat> in warm, wet places, we have lots of life. So Darwin proposed that uh, life must have started out in a warm pool somewhere where there was um, the right sort of conditions. And even though he didn't write about this uh, in his book on the origin of species, he did have a lot of correspondence with the uh, scientific community uh, around uh, about in his time. And this is part of a letter that he wrote uh, to a scientist um, in, in 1871. And he came up with the warm pool hypothesis. Um, and this is what he wrote, uh, but if, and oh, what a big if, and that's what he wrote. We didn't add that. But if, <clears throat> uh, oh, what a big if, we could conceive of some warm little pond, uh, nice English expression there, mm -hmm. uh, with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat and electricity present, that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes. So here we have the seeds of this idea that if we can start off with just some small molecules and with the right sort of um, input of energy, somehow these will make themselves into uh, proteins which are an important part of living things. So this idea was there in, in uh, Darwin, but he never ever really developed that. Uh, there are problems with um, this sort of nice idea of just a warm, calm little pool. Uh, for a start, um, Surprisingly, oxygen in the atmosphere is one of them because living molecule, the molecules in living things react to oxygen uh, in a way that's not very helpful. But you might say, but we need oxygen to live. Well, yes, we do. But it's very, very highly controlled inside our cells. Um, <clears throat> outside things, oxygen uh, causes all sorts of problems. Right? And the other thing is that more energy is needed than just what you would get from a nice little warm pool.
So this idea never really developed. Uh, while people still had the sort of mindset that, well, maybe God kick-started the, um, the first cells and from then on evolution took over. People were happy to believe that. But as we moved into the 20th century, so the early 1900s, people were less likely to believe that because atheism was very much uh, on the rise. And uh, so these three uh, scientists had an enormous impact on getting people to think, how did the first life arise? Can we come up with a serious scientific explanation? So um, A.I. Oprin, that's Alexander Ivanovich Oprin. So uh, he comes from Russia and uh, he was uh, around about the time, remember the Russian Revolution, uh, 1917 and where Russia was taken over by communists and the overriding worldview there was atheism, quite aggressive atheism and they were not going to allow God to even kick start things into life. It had to start from absolutely nothing. And so that uh, mindset was taken up by a number of scientists and they had to think, well, how could this happen and overcome the problems that um, we have with just the warm pool uh, out uh, somewhere being nicely warmed by the sunlight in today's atmosphere. Well, they thought, well, maybe the atmosphere was different. So they came up with a theory that somehow the earth in the past had a, a primitive atmosphere that didn't have oxygen in it, but did have a lot of small molecules like methane and ammonia, which are, are gases that can uh, float around in the atmosphere and can also dissolve in the sea. And maybe some of these small molecules uh, were able to interact in the sea, in water, and you end up with what's called primeval soup. Now, that sounds like something that you might get when a bunch of teenage boys decide to do some cooking, um, but uh, it, it basically means life's molecules are made of very small molecules which have been put together to make bigger molecules. So you had a sort of organic soup um, swishing around in the ocean and somehow that this got together. So finally someone decided, well, let's put this to test. Let, let's do a proper scientific experiment. And this was the first of a number of these experiments um, done by Stanley Miller and he wrote a very famous science uh, paper uh, that's in the journal Science in 1953. And this was the title, A Production of Amino Acids Under Possible Primitive Earth Conditions. So he took that idea of the primitive earth and said, all right, let's put this to the test. Let's see if we could use that sort of um, chemical primitives uh, soup idea and see if it actually works if we give it some energy. Now, this was the first of a whole lot of these experiments uh, with different starting conditions and different sources of energy, but they all have the same basic thing in common. Right? Start off with simple molecules, right? methane, ammonia, water, uh, and various other noxious things like cyanide and things that you don't think that would be associated with life, but they, um, they have carbon and nitri nitrogen as well as hydrogen and oxygen in them, and you need those to make the very, very basic molecules that we have in life. So with Miller's experiment, 
he produced amino acids and, and he did it. He did actually produce amino acids and amino acids are an important molecule because they are the basis of proteins. Now we've all heard of proteins. A lot of our body is made up of proteins, right? Muscles, tendons, um, even bones, all, all sorts of things like that. And we eat them as well uh, because we need them to build our body. And they are also the molecules of function. So we, we'll come to that. So by doing these primeval soup experiments, they did come up with some of the stuff of life, as it were. Life uh, living cells are made up of large, complex molecules, proteins, nucleic acids, carbohydrates, right? And the interesting thing about these very large complex molecules is that they do consist of many small molecules that are strung together. So uh, Miller and his contemporaries and all of those who followed on their mindset was, well, if we can make the small molecules, maybe we can then set up the conditions for them to string themselves together. And we're well on the way to making life. Now, the small molecules are made out of the common elements and the very basic molecules that we find in the earth. Um, and in fact, if you looked at some of these, uh, you, you would say, well, it's just plain ordinary dirt. It's dust of the ground. So keep that in mind. Well, let's recipe test the uh, primeval soup. Uh, is it the right stuff? Well, we won't go into all the chemical details, but Let's just look at the amino acids. So here's an amino acid. And uh, amino acids have a basic structure that is the same um, with a sort of variation on the theme. So they all have, they're made out of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen in this configuration. Now they're not completely flat, but they have two carbon atoms. And on one end, you have a nitrogen atom with um, hydrogen uh, attached to it. That's called the amino end of the, um, or the N end of the molecule. And on the other side, you have a carbon atom with two oxygens and a hydrogen atom. That's called the carboxyl end or the C end of the molecule. So you have N and C and a central carbon atom. And attached to that is another chemical, uh, which is just labeled here R, because that can vary. It, uh, and you can have a whole lot of different ones, uh, but they're all amino acids. They have that same backbone of, of the N and the C. Now, as I said, they're not flat. Um, they are actually three-dimensional shapes. Now, an interesting thing about three-dimensional shapes is that you can get mirror images of them. And uh, so these are called chiral molecules or mirror image molecules is an easier way. Now to understand that concept of how you get mirror images of three-dimensional shapes, um, a good example is your two hands. They have the same structure, the same three-dimensional shape, but they're not exactly the same as one another. They are actually mirror images of one another. So it's the same with a lot of um, organic molecules, a lot of molecules in life, and in particular, amino acids. They come in two mirror image configurations, even though they have the same atoms with the same sort of structure. Uh, and ironically, they are called left and right. Now, there's an interesting story behind that that we won't go into, but they are referred to as left and right. So think about your two hands, left and right, being mirror images 
of one another. So amino acids and sugars, right, they're the, uh, the building blocks of carbohydrates. Um, they have right and left-handed forms. So they come in these two different three-dimensional configurations. Uh, chemically, they're the same in terms of what atoms they have in them and how the atoms are, are linked together, but they are uh, structurally two mirror image forms. When you do chemical soup experiments, you produce a mix of right and left-handed forms, right and left forms, because chemically they do behave the same. However, in life, in living cells, the amino acids are all left-handed. And that's important because when you're going to string these things together, the actual shape matters as much as the chemical interactions. Now, the interesting thing is the sugars are all right-handed. And uh, it doesn't work even if you only have a small number of um, left-handed left sugars or right-handed amino acids. They have to be all the one configuration. But if you just leave it to chance random chemicals, you get a mix. So is it possible to separate the left from the right uh, so that you get a pure mm -hmm. left and right um, mixture depending on what you want? So left-handed amino acids, right-handed uh, sugars. Well, it is possible, and in fact, Louis Pasteur was one of the people who uh, was originally able to do this. He studied uh, a molecule called um, tartaric acid, which is grape sugar. So this was a carbohydrate. And he was actually able to separate uh, the left and right-handed forms. He did this by crystallizing them and drying them out and then meticulously just separating them out. Uh, very, very labor-intensive process. Um, but people worked on this for, for quite a while as to how we could get pure left or right-handed molecules. And eventually, um, three scientists won a Nobel Prize in 2001 for being able to produce chiral molecules with, uh, in another uh, more, more technically advanced but uh, productive way. And we have to th then ask, well, if producing exclusively left and right-handed molecules occurred by natural processes, would it yeah. be worth the yeah. Nobel Prize? You give Nobel Prizes to people who have done really, really clever things or found very, very clever things. So uh, that in itself should make you think um, maybe there's something more than just chemistry going on in producing life. So let's take uh, a little bit more uh, look at amino acids. How are we going to make the amino acids into proteins? So let's go back to our amino acids. So here it is, um, our basic plan of amino acid, an NN and a carboxyl end and a carbon item in the middle with the variable R group. That means it's, it's a little chemical in itself that's attached to the, this uh, N and C backbone. Now, in living things, there are 20 different amino acids, so all of your proteins are extremely long uh, strands of mixes of these 20 different amino acids. And the way they are put together in a very simplistic way is that the N and the C ends link up, but always in the same configuration, right? The C end of one links up to the N end of the next one. And so you can line them all up, link them all up and form a sort of backbone 
that holds the this really huge, huge molecule together. And then you have all the R groups, right, which are like a little chemical uh, themselves hanging off the side there. Now, they all have different chemical properties, and that is how you get the different proteins because those will then interact with them, with each other. Some of them will repel one another, some of them will attract one another, uh, and there are various other chemical interactions involved. And that's how you get your three-dimensional shape. Now, in order to uh, explain that a little bit better, can we come back to us? I've got uh, just something that might help um, explain that. Um, here I've got, here we are, here is my lovely string of amino acids, right? Uh, and I've illustrated the different ones by using these different colors. So each one of those would represent a different R group and the uh, N to C's, the, the backbone of it, is what's holding these all together. Now, some of these different uh, chemical forms will repel one another, they want to move away from one another, some will be attracted to one another, and then you get various sort of hydrophobic interactions and other things that we won't go into the chemistry. But by utilising that, you can then fold up what is just basically one long string into a very complicated um, sort of shape, depending on whether these molecules want to all fly away from one another or whether they want to stick together and make curves. And so you can end up with quite a complicated three-dimensional shape, but it's actually all one long string. Now that's important in terms of how the, um, the information that in the cells is stored in order to make one of these things. And that's where we're going to go to now. So let's go back to my slides if we can. Um, so let's see if we can move on. So even though proteins are made out of all of these same in, uh, bunch of amino acids, right, 20 different amino acids, you can get extraordinarily different shapes and structures. So uh, a couple of uh, proteins you may have heard of, collagen. Now, Joseph, you're, you're investigating collagen at the moment, aren't you? Uh, we are in, indeed, in yes. Uh, that's right, yes. Yeah. Okay. Your bones are actually made up of collagen um, as well as calcium. Uh, so there's collagen in fossil bones as well, and Joseph is involved in some really interesting studies there. So it is... Uh, a long fibrous protein. So it has the sort of amino acids that will form long stringy fibers. Uh, another protein you may have heard of is hemoglobin that, that's inside your red blood cells and it carries oxygen around. Now it's a globular protein. In other words, it's one of those folded up proteins, folded up into a very tight uh, three-dimensional structure designed for carrying oxygen around in your blood. So you can get uh, all sorts of different shapes and configurations depending on the chemical properties and the arrangement of the different amino acids in the protein. So we need to think of, well, what is it that determines the amino acid sequence? The function is determined by its shape 
and the shape depends on the amino acid sequence. In other words, in what, how they're organized, which one comes after what other one, uh, so that uh, when the, the string, if you just let go of the string, it will fold up. Now, again, it is a lot more complicated than that. It won't just sort of spring into a final structure, straight structure, but uh, it does depend on having that right sequence and the, um, the interactions you get from those R groups. Now, you then got an interesting problem. If the function is determined by the shape and the shape is determined by the amino acid sequence, what determines that sequence? It's not chemistry alone. Those N to C bonds that actually hold them together are all the same. What matters is which R group is hanging off the side. The, um, the, the backbone of it made out of those N to C bonds is all the same. You actually need a source of information to decide whether you're going to put um, R1 next to R2 or R19 or whatever. The, the amino acids do have uh, individual names. We'll come to that. So even the most ardent atheists admit there is information in biological molecules. And so uh, this was in an article in the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences a while ago. All known life on Earth is based on biological polymers. Okay, polymers just means long strings of um, small molecules linked up to make a big long one, right? which act as information carriers and catalysts. Therefore, any theory for the origin of life must address the emergence of such a system. In other words, if we're going to understand the origin of life, we don't just need chemistry, we need to understand where the information that is in these chemicals or on these chemicals has come from. Chemistry alone will not explain that. Now, that was uh, more bluntly expressed by an Australian, we're very good at expressing things bluntly down here, who described life as being software for stupid atoms. So if, um, Sam, if you're back now with us, I'm sure you, you will enjoy this, uh, this challenge. How did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? <laughs> And where did the very peculiar form of information needed to get the first cell up and running come from? So where is the software for the stupid atoms of life? Because life is just made of the same atoms that you do find out in the atmosphere, out in the ground. Well, another big molecule that everyone's heard of, it's become quite iconic these days, is DNA, deoxyribose nucleic acid. You don't need to remember that. DNA will do. Everyone knows what you are talking about. And DNA is another one of these polymers. It's a whole lot of small molecules that are strung into a huge long string uh, to get a very, very big molecule. So uh, we won't go into the chemistry of that, but just remember, it is a whole lot of small molecules strung together. So we have a lot of individual segments all strung together. So we can, this um, double helix is a very iconic shape, but it's made up of lots of uh, individual little segments. And this is that's where the information that does make up 
uh, living things is stored. So this is where the information to make those proteins to decide which string, which particular amino acids in what sequence um, are going to be put together to make the proteins of the body. And the way this is done is very clever. The uh, information is stored in terms of chemical letters, um, which are just called A, T, C, and G. Um, and the interesting thing about them is that A's and T's will join up together and C's and G's will join up together. So if you look at our, um, our diagrammatic uh, molecule over here, the double helix means two strands. So like the protein, you have these small molecules sort of hanging off the side of a backbone uh, that holds the whole thing together. And it depends on whether those small molecules are A's, T's, G's and C's as to what sort of information you've got. And uh, keep in mind that uh, A's and T's are always um, joining up together and C's and G's are always joining up together. Now, the really clever thing about this is that that means you can always copy that information accurately. So whenever a cell divides, all of that information has to be copied and so it can be then used in the two new cells we've got. So once that system is set up, you can then go on and make more and more cells and they've got the biological information that they need. And uh, so this is how it, uh, it happens. So DNA double helix, right, two strands together with the A's, T's, G's and C's uh, linked up across the two strands in a way that always means that T's and A's join up, C's and G's join up. So if you want to make some more DNA, you can split that up so that those two strands are now separate and we can then use those as templates to make um, two more strands so that you end up with the same DNA that you had before using the two separated strands as templates. So that way we're keeping the information going. Now, the actual process of doing that is extremely complicated. Here is a diagram. Uh, I'm sorry it's on its side. It's just that uh, to, to fit into the, uh, the slide format we've got here, it was a bit easier to see. But that doesn't matter. You don't need to know the names of all of these um, different components here, even though they do have wonderful names like topoisomerase or anything. Just think of every blob on those DNA strands that are being formed is a protein. Now, that brings up another problem, and we'll come back to that, but, but keep that in mind. So how is this all going to work inside a living cell? Well, that information in DNA is stored in the nucleus of the cell. That's a, a part of the cell that is very neatly partitioned off, where the DNA is stored in a very uh, highly controlled atmosphere. It's a bit like an archive because we need to keep this information from being damaged. So it's a bit like uh, if you store information in an archive under very controlled conditions so that it doesn't degenerate. But in order to use the information, 
it has to be sent out into the rest of the cell, which is called the cytoplasm, which is where all the cellular machinery is going, where we're going to make proteins and you have all of the various other chemical processes going on. So how does that work? Uh, well, let's look at that in very, very simplistic terms. But So we start off with DNA, which is in this archive, and if we want to use the information that is stored in DNA, we don't send the DNA out into the cell. It's a bit like on the building site, you don't take the architect's original drawings, you take copies and uh, take those down to the building site um, so that the original information is stored where it won't get damaged. So the cell will make a working copy, but it's not DNA, it's a single strand and it's called RNA. And it's a very similar, chemically quite similar, uh, hence the NA. So DNA is deoxyribose, nucleic acid, RNA is ribonucleic acid. But never mind, DNA, DNA and RNA will do. This is the working copy that gets sent out into the cellular machinery. And it goes to a structure within the cell called a ribosome which is basically a big protein-making factory. Now, it consists of a whole heap of proteins and some more RNA as well. So it's quite a complicated structure. In fact, uh, they've now sort of unraveled how these work uh, together with all the different proteins and RNA molecules in them. And it needed a supercomputer to actually understand how all the different components inside it work. That should uh, make you think as well. So the, um, the working copy is put into the ribosome and it will string the amino acids in the right order to make your protein. So uh, just a little bit more about how this worked. RNA has that property of base pairing. The bases are those ASTs, Gs and Cs. So you can actually copy the DNA information. It's slightly differently chemically in terms of it doesn't have Ts, it has Us instead. So when you want to copy the information, the A gets paired with U. So if we start off with a string of, uh, of DNA like this, um, the RNA copy is just a little bit different, but it has the same information in it. It's just that um, instead of putting a, a T next to the A in that second slot there, we put a U. Uh, it's, yes, excuse the cockatoos, they're not very musical. Um, we do have a problem with how we're going to use information that is stored on four bases or four chemicals when we have to make 20 different amino acids or we have to send out instructions for 20 different amino acids. Now, there's a really clever thing that happens here. Uh, in the ribosome, it will read the RNA in groups of three. And so each little group of three uh, codes for a different amino acids. These are the names of uh, a, a number of different amino acids. So the... Uh, so are you starting to get the picture of how complex this is? Mm -hmm. There's so much information involved. It's huge and it's complex. You've actually got layers of information. After all, uh, if you're going to read the, uh, the information that's been transcribed from the original DNA into RNA, 
you have to work out where you actually start so that you get the right groups of three. If you were to remove those, if you were to move those little frames sort of one slot ahead, you'd end up with a whole lot of different ones. Now that in itself is another different story, but do you get the picture of the the incredible complexity of this as well as the the amount of information that's involved? But the most serious information problem is this. If you want to maintain and copy DNA, you need proteins. In order to make proteins, you have to have a process called transcription, which is that's how we copy the DNA information to the RNA information. That requires proteins in order to do that. In order to get the RNA information to be used to make a protein, that process is called translation. It requires more proteins. Remember the ribosome, lots of proteins already involved in that, plus some more RNA. And how do we know how to uh, make the proteins? Well, we have to go back to DNA. Ah, we've got a problem here. We can go round and round in circles. Where do we start? Mm -hmm. This is a lovely example of what's called irreducible complexity. This system mm -hmm. will not work unless all of those components are there. And none of those components actually generates any of that information. The information is there, but it's been, it has to be put there from something outside the system. And that's where the Nobel Prize winning um, scientists have come unstuck. They cannot account for where that information came from because they have studied the molecules of life and they know it doesn't generate its own information. So how are we going to explain the origin of life? Not from chemical soup. What we need is the creator's word. And this is where they come unstuck. They want chemical soup, but we know it's actually the creator's word. The chemistry is there, but there's more to it. So the origin of life is not just chemistry. It does involve lots of information. And doesn't that make you think of something? In the beginning was the word, and who was the word? Right? All things were made by Christ and for Christ. So if we can just come back to us, I think we probably generated enough uh, information there for a few questions. Um, so maybe we could uh, have a look at some of those. Well, Diane, if the rocks cry out the glory of God, then uh, what does the cell do, eh? <laughs> it shouts even point. louder. Indeed. Yes. Well, it's the, um, the creation that is the living things that Romans says yeah. that God has stamped his very nature into mm. creation so that we are without excuse but to believe. Yes, in Jesus indeed. Christ. Yeah. So very vitally important there. Yes, I think um, it's about time we took a few questions and then we're going to have a blast from the past uh, and I'll get <laughs> Diane to introduce yeah. that. And then we're going to watch this uh, interview um, with uh, Professor Ed Neeland, which I'll explain a little bit more about mm -hmm. in a bit. But uh, for the time being, Sam, it's going to be handed over to you uh, to take us through some thank yous, first of all, and then into some questions.
Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we've got some thanks to give out first. Uh, so Doki Doki coming in swinging with a 149 US buckaroos, a red box of popcorn. Uh, I did actually polish off my popcorn earlier. Um, so that was uh, preemptive. Oh, well. Preemptive. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, well, we, we are going to watch a movie, so we'll, we'll have we we'll have oh, a box of And then Doki Doki again coming in with a super sticker 149 US buckaroos, a banana. Just banana. You know, as you do. Need your potassium. Need your potassium. Uh, Jim P coming in with 199 Aussie buckaroos, a slice of pink birthday cake with purple icing and a candle just to top it off. You're Thank a you week much. ahead, mate. You're a week ahead there with the birthday cake. I think that's that's next week, isn't it, Sam, or the week after? Something like that. Uh, yes, yes, yeah, the week after next. Week after week next. After next yeah. is our birthday one. Um and then we have Iron Mac coming in with four US buckaroos, pair character exaggeratingly stretching his arm forward to offer a cup of coffee. Um, we're always yeah. grateful for a cup of coffee. It's morning yeah. here. We need our cups of coffee. <laughs> Love it. And uh, Keith uh, coming in with 9.99 US buckaroos. Love this teaching. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, um, for your uh, stickers and donations. Thank you so much. Um, I would encourage you to, if you are financially able to, uh, and you feel led to by by uh, the Lord, to donate to Creation Research because we we do always uh, need to um, keep the ministry going, and um, the, you know uh, times are tougher than they used to be. Um, so we do appreciate everything you give. Uh, it really does mean a lot to us. Right. Okay. Let's do a question. And as Doki Doki came in with the first uh, super sticker of the evening, he gets the first question. Uh, Doki Doki says, um, how would you respond to those who distance themselves from the problems of abogen abo uh, abiogenesis as not important to the evolutionary debate? Well, unless you unless you have either a creation or a biogenesis, you haven't got an evolutionary debate to begin with. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I once actually about. heard a lawyer um, make make that very point, and he he was giving a lecture on legal things, but he came earlier in the conference that I was at and listened to the lecture on abiogenesis that was given by one of our scientific colleagues. And he got up and he said, look, um, this lecture has just proved that the rest of it couldn't happen because as a lawyer, he knew that um, if you don't have the first step in a sequence of events, it doesn't matter how logical a story you tell after that. If the first thing didn't happen, the rest of it didn't happen. <laughs> It's a very good point, and um, that's why it's 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 good to to spend time discussing things like this to discuss mm -hmm. the origin of life, biogenesis, and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, no good thing. All right, do we do another question? Yeah, let's do another question. Why not? Okay, well I've I've got to give thanks again because Doki Doki coming in swinging again uh, with uh, one forty nine US buckaroos a banana peel. So he's eaten the banana he gave us, and he's given us the banana peel now. Oh, dear. Well, well we're trying fine. not to slip on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we can use it as, uh, for compost in the garden. There we go. That's a use for it. Um, right, okay. So we have a question coming from Hive Science. This might make you guys laugh. Um, question, what did the primeval soup taste like? <laughs> We'll have to ask Adam. Considering what was in it, I'd say it tasted pretty terrible. 
<laughs> you, you might have to ask the aliens who seeded light. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Very good. Um, um, shall we? Uh, right. Shall uh, have we got another another quick question yeah, there, Sam? Yeah, we've got another question here. Uh, this one comes in from Doki Doki again. Uh, Doki uh, is asking, "What do you think of the early RNA world hypothesis?" Uh, all right. The early RNA hypothesis is well. Um, everyone knows DNA is a very, very huge and very complicated molecule. Maybe we can start with a simpler one like RNA, which is a single strand. So it's a simpler molecule. And uh, a couple of decades ago, a really interesting thing was found out about RNA in that it can act as a catalyst. In other words, it can, um, it, it's not just an information character. It, it can actually act as a catalyst. In other words, it can make um, chemical reactions happen. And some RNA molecules are almost capable of, uh, of reproducing themselves. So people sort of clung on to that and say, right, maybe life started with RNA molecules because they have these other properties apart from just passively um, carrying information. However, it, it really does not work. RNA is a fairly fragile molecule. After all, it's only made to be a sort of um, temporary molecule. So it does tend to fall to bits fairly easy, fairly easily in, in the wrong sorts of conditions. And certainly uh, you can't just put some out in the sea or out in the water without it falling to bits. Um, I remember reading a quote from another chemist who, who criticised this theory, and he not from a creation point of view, but just simply from a chemical point of view, and said, um, if you look at RNA, it's, it, it almost screams at you, I did not evolve in water. Um, so it, it's... It's an interesting idea, but it doesn't solve any problems in terms of the chemistry. It, uh, RNA just tends to fall to bits faster than it can be made, really, if you just leave it to chemistry. Particularly in water, by hydrolysis. Yes. Mm. It, it, what amazes me is even the simple experiment that Miller and Yuri did took an enormous amount of intelligent design. Mm. That oh yes, was not a mm. random natural process, and mm. and then you get to well, okay, well, the genesis of the chemicals themselves that were put into this soup. It's the complexity is just unimaginable. Well, the thing that comes to mind for me with Stanley Miller, he he spent his entire career trying to prove that yes. life could come from these non-living chemicals. Mm. And so there's, there's two things that come to mind for me with Stanley Miller, and I don't want to be mean, but but he was, one, persistent, but two, he was a persistent failure, yeah. you know, mm. because he just never succeeded in his entire career in doing what he was trying to do. So uh, sad that someone would spend mm. so much energy um, and intelligence, really, Yes. To, to prove something that's not happening. Yeah, indeed. Um, right, well, it's time for, uh, we've got some more questions coming through, but we'll deal with them a little bit later. It's time for a blast from the past before we go into this um, 
um, interview with Professor Ed Neeland, which I will um, show you later. And the reason why we're not going to show the entirety of this next little clip is because, number one, I think the entire thing is like three or four hours long. It's a fairly extensive uh, program. Um, but secondly, it is available for free up on our website. Uh, in fact, on our YouTube channel, I think, is available for free to watch, which is called The Search for the Origin of Life. Now, if you remember um, last week or the week before, we had our living fossils, well, of living fossils and we had a little look at John Mackay right with his shorts and his 70s hairdo uh, filmed in the 90s but this is uh, even uh, earlier I believe Diane this program yes yes it was um, made for, by a request from, from a school actually mm. to um, we, we we have been t uh, teaching this course on the origin of life well e even before we actually founded creation research it goes back to john's time uh, when he was a, a school teacher in, in a school <laughs> in brisbane mm. and he um, put together this course we developed it a little bit more um, after uh, we <clears throat> after creation research was set up and mm. we had it available just as a book um, but john was in asked if he would actually teach it um, in a live classroom and and they've filmed that so uh, we we have uh, some of this archival footage as it were <laughs> yes we uh, it's, it's a great program yeah. and it's it's taught as sort yeah. of a, a like a lecture to students yeah. it covers mm. a lot of information and even mm. though obviously the camera and the hairdos are a bit dated the uh, <laughs> the actual content mm. is very very good so we're just going to show you a short little clip to get you uh, excited yes. about it and make mm. sure you go over and watch the entire program it's available on our youtube but let's just watch uh, a little short five minute clip uh, of john talking and presenting this before we discuss a little bit further uh, about the origin of life and have a look at that Professor Ed Neeland interview as well. So, um, over to the clip. sterilized the equipment to kill all microorganisms, excluding all traces of oxygen, and simulated lightning by generating sparks between tungsten electrodes. Incredibly, within a week, the raw materials of life assembled themselves like enchanted building blocks, creating the ordered structures of amino acids, the building blocks of proteins, where before there had been only chaos. Okay, obviously the authors of your textbook on the origin of life, that section, are most impressed by this experiment um, about where life possibly came from. We're going to do a little bit of history beforehand. Um, up on a blackboard, we've got a few dates, 1861. And you might find it surprising, but before 1861, there were a lot of people who believed that uh, if it rained on the dirt, the sun came out, 
One day later, you produced worms. Of course, their basis was that if you do watch it rain and the sun does come out when the ground's wet, the worms do crawl out on the ground. But they basically believed that dirt plus rain plus sun plus one day gave worms. Um, it was a theory known as spontaneous generation. Of course, it did give parents an opt-out. And if you're taking notes, make sure you get down our headings and we'll fill in the words as we go. The parents, of course, um, you've heard the stories when you went and asked mum that embarrassing question, where did you come from? Or you went and asked dad, how did I get here? And dad says, we found you in a cabbage patch. Well, those sort of stories go back to this sort of belief, that somehow matter plus um, circumstances plus a little bit of time can produce living things. Cabbages plus time give kids. Well, at least that was a nice opt-out that they like to think. Um, if you wanted to turn this into some sort of um, pseudo-scientific formula, well, dirt plus rain, let's put down M for matter. Um, plus sun, let's put down E for energy. And plus one day, let's put down T for time. And basically, a summary of the theory of spontaneous generation before 1861 said that that formula produced life. The trouble is, if that's all you think they believed, it's wrong. In most of the textbooks, these people are presented as unscientific, um, something a little bit missing. So we need to fill you in on why would people like Isaac Newton, a brilliant physicist, actually believe something like that? Because they did. What you'll find is that most of these people believe that when God created, as recorded in the book of Genesis, he instructed the earth to bring forth plants. So therefore, um, it wasn't just a question of matter plus energy plus time producing life. They actually believed that Genesis um, tells us that God had information which was left in the dirt from the time of creation. So that it was matter plus energy plus time. And we'll put another symbol in here, outside information, left over from the original creation. Who's heard of Pasteur? What's he famous for? Don't say milk. Cows are famous for milk. Had one class say that. Um, what did he do with milk? The fact is he pasteurized it, didn't he? Okay, he pasteurized it, and we benefit from that today. Um, Louis Pasteur was interested in this theory of spontaneous generation because there were many people who believed that matter plus time plus energy plus this leftover information could produce life, and there were many people who said it doesn't work that way. Worms do not come from a mixture of dirt and rain and sun plus time with this leftover information. Flies don't come from meat that's left out to get hot and rotten and it turns into flies. It doesn't work that way. So Pasteur did some series of very famous experiments in which he basically established matter plus energy plus time gives matter plus energy plus time. Nothing happens that way. In fact, if you kill all the life in milk, if that's your milk at a certain degrees of temperature, um, it doesn't matter how long you live it, you leave it, if all the things are dead in it, you end up with milk. Uh, if you've still got something living in it, what happens to the milk? It rots. So the fact is, Louis Pasteur's famous experiment was concerning the origin of life in the present world, and he basically established that spontaneous generation wasn't possible.
that's a good that's a good that's a that's a good throwback to that was when i i was born in 1995. <laughs> that's long, old as me yeah yeah long time dudes will come back yeah <laughs> no good stuff but it'll just shows you a nice little i mean it's john obviously in his element right in a classroom with a blackboard and a chalk uh, so that shows you how dated it is but uh it's uh i think it's like a three-hour program i think there's like two halves about an hour and a half long each uh, it's well worth a watch it's very um easy to follow along with and um yeah it's a great it's a great series both of them are available on our youtube channel so go and check that out there okay um <clears throat> so the next uh thing we're going to be be watching because obviously this is basically going to take over john's section is uh, an interview with john and professor ed neeland now ed neeland is um an associate of creation research he's been involved with creation research for many years he features on some of the things like the darwin trilogy right so uh, Darwin on the Rocks, uh, Darwin's Evolution and Time's Up Darwin, uh, and a number of other things. I got the privilege of interviewing him for the uh, Dinosaur Project, uh, which is now available, which is, uh, he's a, a, a fascinating and very, very good researcher at the University of British Columbia. And um, this program, which was uh, which was made, the, the, the sort of the amazing story of life, um, which is a sort of an interview between John and Professor Ed Neeland. It's a fascinating interview. And uh, we had a load of DVDs of them, but we seem to have sold out of them in the UK. Um, and we've pretty sure we've sold out of them in 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 Australia as well. Going on what John was saying, uh, and there's a, just a handful of them left over in the states. Mm -hmm. um, and for some reason and somehow they kind of got dropped off of our streaming service. So I found out only today that we don't actually have any MP4s or a streaming of this uh, interview available. It's it's a really important and amazing interview. So yeah, uh, that. I, that was before I joined. <laughs> yes, it's not. It's not <laughs> um, I'm sure we know where the blame lies, but we won't go there. Um, <laughs> But uh, I got uh, Sarah and my wife today to um, sort of work her uh, wonderful technology and ended up basically taking a um, digital copy from one of the DVDs, which is what we're going to play in a moment. So an interview between Professor Ed Neeland from the University of British Columbia and John Mackay talking about the origin of life and some of this complexity side of things as well. So his background is making up molecules. So uh, if anybody knows, uh, it's going to be him. And so what you're effectively getting are two very qualified, very competent uh, biologists or people with biologists backgrounds both Diane Eager and now Professor Ed Neeland basically uh, detailing down the origin of life and abiogenesis and the complexity that is found in these things so while I pull that up Diane have you got any uh, things you'd like to say uh, about Ed Neeland or this program yes he's been a, a long time uh, co colleague of ours he's um, <clears throat> His area is, he'll explain that, is synthetic chemistry. In other words, synthetic meaning putting molecules together. And he will tell you, you know, what, what a complex process it is and how many people involved. In other words, how many human brains are necessary to even make a fairly small organic molecule. 
Um, so as you say, if anyone can tell you how to make uh, put molecules together to make bigger and uh, biologically active molecules, he is the one to do it. And we're very grateful for his support and for his uh, advice, uh, particularly in matters of organic chemistry. Uh, so, so yes, this is a very interesting interview. <clears throat> No, Joe, Joe, Joe. It's not working. Yeah. It's not Sorry, working. Sorry, there we are. That's better. Um, is that better? Yep. Testing, testing. Good, good, good. Right. I think this is all ready to go now. Hopefully the sound also works. But uh, let's watch this. It's about 20 minutes long, so it's about the length of one presentation. And that will give us just enough time to have a bit of a chat at the end and answer some questions. Mm. But this is absolutely fascinating. And effectively, uh, it is, or essentially, it is unavailable. Uh, as of yet, we will try and rectify that. But sit back and enjoy, because this is a rather fantastic program. On today's program, I have a synthetic chemist, Dr. Ed Nealon from Canada. G'day, mate. It's good to have you on the program. Thank you very much, John. Okay, now, what's exactly a synthetic chemist do? Synthetic chemists? Well, we make medicines and polymers and plastics and dynamite. So you glue molecules together to try and make money? Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> okay, now, Ed, our subject today deals with life and time. Mm. Because, you see, I do lots of work in universities and colleges and even high schools and their textbooks are full of the theory of evolution, but almost every one of them starts with a thing called Miller's amino acid experiment in which these amino acids, which are part of protein, somehow got together by themselves and you and I are the end result. Now, you're someone who professionally has to put molecules together. Mm -hmm. What's your honest opinion as a researcher on this thesis of molecules gluing themselves together. I just wish it were true, John, because it would make my life so much easier. <laughs> but More profit, eh? less time. Well, yeah, let me give you an example. As a chemist, I try to put together a medicine. It may take me two or three years of supervising graduate students, thinking about ideas. Now, this is not just theory. You've actually done this. This is how you earn your living. Absolutely. This is my bread and butter. This is what I was trained in. And it takes a long time. It takes exacting conditions and right molarities and concentrations and purification techniques. And molecules just don't come together nicely to build complex structures. That's just, why we pay a lot for your drugs. That's you do. Aha. Uh -huh. It's not the chemicals. It's the time, mm. the effort, the intelligence. Yes. Okay, but Miller's amino acid experiment, because I learned it at school, and I've still noted it in present-day textbooks, says these molecules got together by themselves and given long enough they became more and more sophisticated until Dr. Ed Nealand is the result. Well, that's a nice story, John. Uh, but the reality of it is if you put together chemicals, let's say some ammonia and some water and, and whatever you've got, cyanide, you can mix all sorts of things together. It's true that if you heat them or give them an energy source, you'll get them to react. I mean, that's how I make my money. But they don't react to create the molecules that make up the cell. There are a lot of problems. You get oftentimes intractable tars, you get wonderful mixtures of compounds which will not selectively react with each other to make the things that we need to make life. But the textbooks say these amino acids 
hooked together to make proteins and proteins somehow end up as frogs and fishes and birds and dinosaurs and people. From a chemist's perspective, you just said this is not what happens, but when you are actually dealing with this experiment, what does happen? What does happen is the amino acids do link up, and you will get proteins, but the wrong types. You'll get, you'll get mixtures of handed molecules coming together. What do you mean by handed molecules? It turns out that life is either one mirror image or the other when it comes to making molecules. You mean like when I look in the mirror, I see myself, but I'm actually backwards? Yes. Or think of your hands. You can think of molecules. Have you ever noticed how your hands are not the same hand? Mm -hmm. So you've got a left and a right hand. Try putting your left hand in a right glove. It's not right. It feels wrong. And molecules are the same way. Now it turns out that when you make molecules of life, they're all the L amino acids, let's say the left hand, and there are no R or right amino acids that come along with it. And so this is very important because Miller's experiment, even though it did generate some amino acids, not all of them, by the way, uh, they made mixtures of both handedness, both hands well, of these why, compounds. Why would that matter? Oh, it makes a big difference because when you're putting amino acids together to make proteins, it's got to be all one mirror image to make that protein. If even one right-handed or, or the other enantiomer molecule gets in there, that's the end of your protein. It will not function as it's supposed to. You mean it won't hook up in the right way? It won't do its job because life depends on proteins, which are enzymes. And they're very finely crafted, beautiful compounds that have clefts in them. And you don't get the right shaped clefts if you don't get the right handed molecules making the protein. You mean it's like a lock and key sort of thing? Very much so. And you get the wrong lock for the wrong key if you start mixing together these mirror molecules. But surely the textbooks say given long enough, you could end up with the right ones, or in this case, the left ones. <laughs> no, no, it's just the exact opposite. What happens is, even if you happen to make, let's say, one mirror image molecule, if you give it enough time, it'll turn into a mixture of both mirror image molecules over time. They, what's called racemize. And so time is not the hero of the plot here. And what's worse is the longer you leave chemicals, the more they react together, the more, the more they start making tars and polymers, which are completely useless. So what's useless. actually a tar? Because I've seen it on the road, but what, what do you mean as a chemist by a tar? Think of a tar as lots and lots of molecules bonding together, bonding together, bonding together. Then they continue to bond until they become very large, large molecules. These are what tars are. They're polymers. So that's why the road surface sticks together. That's right. Aha. Never knew that. Thank you, Dr. Ed. <laughs> Well, listening, you've been listening to Dr. Ed Nealon. He's a synthetic chemist, and our subject today is where does life come from, how do the molecules work, and the big issue of time. Now, Ed, we continue to read in the textbooks that, okay, some of these criticisms you're making are valid, but given that hydrothermal vents could enable this process to keep going in one direction, well, in your job as a chemist who works with water and hot stuff, um, what do you think of the next step that's suggested in this process? Well, it seems like a grasping at straws to me, John, to be honest. Um, when you start doing chemistry in water, there is this evil monster in the background called hydrolysis. Hydrolysis, cleavage by water. If you start making any sort of a protein, that will start to cleave in hot water. That's a guarantee. Think of what happens to an egg when you throw it into hot water. I just had one for lunch and it was rather hard. Yes, and it, it, it was reacting with the water and it was coagulating and things were happening chemically. The same thing will happen to proteins. If you start to form a protein in hot water, it will eventually break apart. So in other words, there's no future in this Miller-type approach. No. 
Now, you're a synthetic chemist. Do you make left-handed or right-handed molecules in your profession? Yes, I do, but I have to start with left-handed and right-handed molecules. My old master supervisor used to say, chirality begats chirality. It and sounds like a biblical phrase almost. That's how old he was. <laughs> in other words, what you start with is what you finish with, except you've just mentioned, given long enough, what's even liable to happen to a choice by you of left-handed molecules? If you leave a chiral mixture, which let's say one side, one mirror image, it will eventually racemize to give you an equal mixture. Okay, wasn't this a problem I remember reading? My background, of course, is in geology and education, but I remember reading about a drug called thalidomide mm -hmm. that this was a problem with. Now, what do you know about that situation? A fair bit. I teach it to my second-year students. Thalidomide in the 1960s was a morning sickness drug for pregnant women. They did all their testing on one enantiomer, one mirror image molecule of it. Then to save money, they started making equal mirror image molecules of the thalidomide. Turned out that this mirror image molecule was actually teratogenic. It went after the baby in the womb. And so when women started taking thalidomide in the 60s, yes, this mirror image molecule was safe and actually cured the morning sickness. It was this mirror image molecule that actually caused genetic defects in the children so that they were born with shortened legs and limbs. And so if you had 50-50 left-handed, right-handed mixture, the drug really was just as much bad as it was good. Very much so. In fact, more worse than, than, than good. Okay, so I remember the results because many of the women had children who were born deformed, etc. Yes. But haven't recently one of the big companies tried to bring thalidomide back on the market? It's true. They're trying to treat, uh, use it for treating leprosy, Hansen's yes. disease, and they've been quite successful with that. Well, what have they done to it that I mean, do they only give it to men? <laughs> no, no. Uh, they're very, very strict about who gets it, and you have to take it very quickly because it does racemize over time. It does the L will turn into the, 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 the D enantiomer. So what you're really saying, Ed, is that even if you could kickstart amino acids, and even if you could have a hydrothermal vent full of left-handed amino acids, given a short time, not a long time, given a short time, you'll end up with left-handed and right-hand, which is what won't work for making life. Correct, and it's quite a gift just to start with left-handed amino acids, by the way. I know of no, no possibility of starting with just left-handed. Chirality begats chirality. What, what do you mean? Because you said you start with chirality molecules. Do you mean you have to get it from a source where they already exist? Yes, I have to buy it from chemical manufacturing companies. So where do they get it from? They get it from nature. Ah, so we haven't yet figured out how to make just one variety. Not by itself. Okay, one question to finish this segment. How long does this sort of breakdown take? You said with thalidomide, it's real fast. What does real fast mean? It could be as fast as uh, weeks. Weeks? Yeah. Okay, what about amino acids? Amino acids can racemize probably months. Okay, now we talked during our lunch break a little while ago about using amino acids to date parts of our body because they break down at a fairly rapid rate. Which part of our body do we use them in? Well, amino acids? Yeah. Every part of our body almost. So they're in, in the whole lot of us, but yeah. do we date the whole lot of us or you were mentioning teeth. How no, does that work? In, in teeth you can have amino acid ratios and it's, it's well known that if you actually take a look at old teeth, the amino acids that start off with L start becoming racemic, L and D, both, both mixtures. You mean the longer I'm here, the more D I'm getting? That's basically <laughs> the idea, yeah. So <laughs> when I'm ultimately dead, I'm 50% left-hand, 50% right-hand. Is that what you're saying? Yes. When Mr. Miller did his experiment, what percentage did he end up with? 
So he didn't invent life, he invented death. He did. Ah, it would have been cheaper to shoot a cow, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, listen, we've been talking with Dr. Ed Nealon. He's a synthetic chemist. And if you've been enjoying the program, you can learn more on creationresearch.net. That's creationresearch.net. Now we'll get back to Dr. Ed with a few more questions. Now, Ed, in the textbooks, we've been sort of following their theme, amino acids to proteins to hydrothermal vents. And from your perspective, just to remind people, this whole, given millions of years it's possible, as a synthetic chemist, you say there's no way it is. That's correct, John. Uh, chemicals do not spontaneously synthesize into cell biomolecules. It they just take intelligent chemists like you to do it. And a lot of time and money. So even though you know you don't get involved in religious stuff in your laboratory, you're convinced that you need an intelligent designer to design molecules like we find in real life? It absolutely screams of intelligent design. I mean, it, just take the analogy. If it takes an intelligent PhD, supposedly me, <laughs> and my graduate <laughs> Sorry students... Sorry for laughing. <laughs> and my graduate students to make a compound, and it's a simple compound, then imagine taking a look at these mega giant structures in the cell, which are awesome in their complexity. And you have to think, if it took a, a simple person like me to make a simple molecule, it must have taken an incredible chemist, an incredible designer, to make the molecules that you see in the cell. So in your role as a person who puts molecules together and earns his living doing that and lectures on university campuses on this subject, you're really saying you're playing the role of a micro-creator. Yes, in a very small and inefficient way. I'm not as good as what God has done. Okay, so moving one step up, the textbooks leap, and I really say leap, from the chapter on amino acids and protein straight up to things like DNA and full-blown cells. There's no chapters in between. Um, but, you know, with DNA, uh, I read a chapter on DNA and it said it's got right-handed sugars. Now, remind us again what this right-hand and left-hand stuff is because it's not something we think of out there. And, and it is a strange concept. It was discovered by Louis Pasteur in the 1800s. It was the, the guy with the grapes and wines in France. And, and, and cured rabies mm -hmm. and, and the silk industry and all the rest of it. Uh, he discovered that there were mirror image molecules. They were the same atoms, the same compounds, but they were mirror images of each other and they had different effects. How did he actually discover this? By observation. He had some crystals of tartaric acid. And he noticed that some of the crystals were mirror images from each other. And he took the tweezers. You mean like when I look in the mirror, everything's reversed? That's what you meant? Think of a pile of gloves. If you came up to a pile of gloves, you could separate those gloves into right-handed gloves and left-handed gloves. True? That is what Pasteur did with these crystals. He was the only one who noticed that these crystals had mirror images, like, like hands. And he took tweezers and spent the whole night with a candle <laughs> separating the crystals out into one pile. Either it was this left-handed or the right-handed pile. And he separated the entire pile of crystals out. And then when he tested the properties of them, they had slightly different properties. My respect for this man has just gone way up indeed. And so when they've got slightly different properties, what sort of slightly different properties? Because they must be the same chemistry, surely. Well, we talked about thalidomide, for instance. Yes. Thalidomide's one mirror image molecule, a beautiful morning sickness drug, safe. It's mirror image molecule teratogenic, goes after the baby in the womb, creates deformations and mutations. So and just yet, having one part facing a different direction, you know, ge geometrically as to say, causes a totally different set of reactions? It's amazing how finely balanced it is, yes. So what was the difference between these left-handed and right-hand tartaric acids? Chemically, they were the same molecule. Yeah. And the only difference was that they were mirror images like this. Well, did they do anything different? Oh, they, they, tasted, they tasted different, and the bacteria ah. could, could attack one and not attack the other. Okay, well, taste is a good connection back to that chapter in the book which says the DNA 
can happen by itself, but it's got D right-handed sugars in it. Mm. And you're saying that this D stuff, L stuff, uh, Louis Pasteur discovered it's to do with the structure, the geometry of the molecule. Mm -hmm. And do you find any left-handed sugars in organic cre creatures? Uh, no, you can make them. Make them? You mean you, you make them in a laboratory? Yep. There are people who can make sort of the wrong enantiomer, the wrong mirror <laughs> image. They do it for fun. They do it for fun. Well, why would we make left-handed sugars? Oh, chemists are curious sorts of people. They like to investigate their chemistry and see what happens. Now, the interesting thing about left-handed sugars is they're not sweet. Okay, now that's a good concept because I heard somebody say that these left-handed sugars are what you get when you get artificial sweetness. Yeah, no, no, no. What they do there is that they oftentimes will use chlorinated glucose molecules like Splenda, for instance, mm -hmm. and it still has a sweet taste but it doesn't get metabolized by your body very well. Okay, that's so why it they're passes not calories. through. That's right. And the, the left-handed sugars would also pass through your body because you can't metabolize L-sugars very well, but they're bitter tasting. Okay, so they're bitter and they just keep going through, but that yeah. means your body, in order to tell the difference between the right sugars and the left sugars, as it were, you have to be preset. Oh, yes. You, are, you yourself are a chiral molecule, if I may say that. Oh, I'm not sure if that's <laughs> a compliment or not, Ed. But the point that, that, that really just occurs to me is in order for my body to detect these right-handed sugars, I have to have a computer calculation somewhere that is programmed to actually chemically detect them, correct? Mm -hmm. But this rings the, 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 the merit, the, not the merits, rings the bells about that's a design feature. It's absolutely a design feature. A pre-existent design feature. Completely. This whole concept of right and left-handed molecules, and how did something become only left-handed molecules, there's not one human being that knows why this happens. We can artificially separate left and right-handed molecules. Again, it's a lot of work, time, and intelligence. And the fact that we exist as human beings with all one type of enantiomer or one type of left or right-handed molecule in us screams of intelligence. It screams of a designer god. So the fact that we've got left-handed amino acids in our proteins, which time will not do, mm -hmm. and the fact that we've got right-handed sugars, which time won't separate anywhere by themselves, and the fact that we've got both basically doubles the improbability of it ever happening by itself? Yes, I would agree. And the point that really did get to me, and I haven't thought of this till you brought this up, was that we have to be pre-programmed to actually recognize right-handed sugars, and that really is overwhelming evidence of God's genius as a program creator. Yes. We've been talking to Dr. Ed Nealand, who's a professional synthetic chemist who glues molecules together, and the quicker he does it, the more he gets paid. And he's been telling us that time alone, millions of years, actually does the opposite of what the evolutionist tells us. You can only do it quickly, and you have to do it creatively. Well, if you've enjoyed what you've been hearing, there's more information on creationresearch.net, that's creationresearch.net, or send your questions to info at creationresearch.net. Now, Ed, as we've been following through this sequence in many public high school textbooks and university college textbooks on where life came from, there's almost inevitably a mention of life coming from outer space because we haven't seen it emerge down here. And in Australia, where I come from, there's some famous meteorites. And they Murchison. say, well, we've, the Murchison meteorite, yeah, from down south of where I live. Yeah. And they, they claim they found mixtures of left-handed and right-handed molecules on there. And the same is being stated about comets or asteroids and things like that. 
Now, it's an extension for sure, but what do you think of this, both as the reports originally and the chemical potential? Is, is it real? The first thought I have is, if people are grasping at straws trying to find other ways of putting amino acids on the earth, then maybe Miller's experiment isn't so good and people know it. Secondly, when I see meteorites coming in through the atmosphere, they look kind of hot. <laughs> I think I'd agree with that, yes. Yes, and we get back to the shelf life of chemicals. If you start heating chemicals to the temperature of a flaming meteorite, you're going to start breaking them down pretty badly. And I've read that report, at least one paper, where they were talking about parts per billion of only some of the amino acids. And they were, of course, racemic mixtures of amino acids, not just one mirror image and the other mirror image. So when you say they were racemic, were they 50-50? 50-50 mixtures of right and left-handed molecules. Like what happens to you when you're totally dead. That's correct. Because that's what we got to before. So again, to repeat the question, what do you think of this so-called possibility? Well, as a scientist, I would say it's a possibility, but it's a very, very remote possibility. I mean, think about parts per billion concentrations building up on the Earth, which then have to combine to make the right types of proteins, which then have to, et cetera, et cetera. So we're back to where we started. This That's is not right. going to happen on Earth. No, I don't think so. It's, it's pretty remote. And as your old lecturer said, chirality begets chirality. So if you have 50-50 to start with, come on, be dogmatic. There is no known mechanism apart from intelligence yep. to separate these out. You're dead in the water, John, if you've got racemic mixtures of molecules and trying to make one pure enantiomer. And again, time won't do it? No, no, time worsens it. Only process does it with an intelligent chemist behind it? Absolutely. And that's what you get paid to do? Apparently. Let. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you think apparently you get paid for using all this intelligent design, but back to our main subject, even this, these amino acids could somehow form proteins on planet Earth, um, even over time, what's going to happen to them next? Well, the proteins, if they get formed, are probably just going to degrade away with water being present. They'll hydrolyze. So why do your proteins last? Ah, but my proteins are already inside of a buffered solution, inside of a cell. They're protected. There's a whole biofeedback pathway. Hang on, hang on. You pathway. used a word the average person out there doesn't know. Buffered. What does that mean? A buffer is a solution that very carefully controls the pH. That's the acidity or basicity of a solution. Chemicals are very sensitive to acid changes. Try putting some acid on your hand and see I've what happens. I've done that. The battery spilled on that me one day. It hurt, didn't it? It sure did. Well, in our cells, we have to have buffered solutions. That is where the pH is controlled very carefully because these beautiful protein molecules, if the pH changes, the acidity changes, they change their shape. They change their shape, they change their chemical reactivity, and that's the end of life. So to summarize where you've got to, there's no way the amino acids can form proteins, no matter how long. There's no way the proteins can survive, even if they were here, unless they're in a pre-designed cell with a pre-designed buffer system with a pre-designed set of enzymes. It takes carefully controlled conditions to make the right proteins. And don't forget this enantiomer problem. If you start making proteins that have mixtures That's of right left and left... That's the left-handed, right-handed stuff. If you start making them with right and left, you have a dead protein. Okay, so again, that points back not to millions of years of evolution, but to God creating. I mean, there's no other way to say it. It's true. Um, but the interesting question is, when I bring that up in my lectures, or I'm sure you have too, because you've lectured about creation on campus, correct? Yes, I have. And people automatically say, well, there must be a God if there's a creation, which is quite logical. That's where we're going. Yes. But why do the scientists keep insisting, given long enough, 
this process must have happened because we're here. From your experience as a professional chemist, a university professor, why do you think they are doing this or what have you observed them doing it for? Well, two reasons probably. Uh, scientists, first of all, like to have the five senses. If it can't be, you know, the five senses, then people don't think it's going to exist. So that's when we talk about God, scientists see that as a cop-out. It isn't a cop-out to talk about a designer if you see design. The other one is that what are the ramifications if God actually exists and has done all of this? The ripple effect goes far and wide into people's lives, and they frankly would prefer not this to, to be. They don't want God to exist. In other words, it's a question of authority mm -hmm. over a creation. Sure. Because if we did evolve from proteins becoming... Then we are know, God. Yeah, then we are God. We're, well, we're the best attempt at God there'll ever be, That's so we better vote for whoever we want to control <laughs> the universe. That's correct. Yeah. Okay, so just to summarise then before we finish our program, time won't make amino acids exclusively left-handed like we find in life. Never. Time won't put them together into proteins. Not with, the, not with what we need. And you, well, it will if you give it the right conditions. Uh, but, but if you that's just throw them in water, one. yes, but if you just throw them in water, they're going to hydrolyze. Okay, and when it comes to DNA, which actually makes the things that turn into protein in your body, the whole system has to be carefully designed anyway. It's never been made by itself, ever. Ah, so the more complicated life is discovered to be, the more genius it imputes to the creator. Absolutely. I'm in, I'm in awe of what is inside the cell. Well, we've been talking to Dr. Ed Neeland, who's a professional synthetic chemist who makes his living by putting chemicals together. And if you found today's program interesting, exciting, you can send your questions to info at creationresearch.net or go to our main website, creationresearch.net. And thank you, Dr. Ed. Thank you. Well, there we go. That brings us to sort of to the end of that section there. Hopefully it switches itself off at some point. Where are we? There we are. Perfect. Excellent. Well, hopefully you enjoyed that. It's a, a fascinating, fascinating tour through uh, biology, through the design of life and through uh, biochemistry as well. And Professor Ed Neeland is um, a fantastic uh, professor in terms of both his academic work as well as his university and teaching work. He's been voted most uh, yeah. popular professor in University of British Columbia for, for quite a while. Um, so, it's, uh, yeah, he's, he really does know his stuff uh, very much so. And I had the privilege of actually interviewing him um, for the, the, the new Dinosaur uh, Project documentary, which I believe is out now, and we're getting some DVDs of it fairly soon, uh, which will be available, looking at things like soft tissue inside dinosaur bones and stuff like that, and basically getting his perspective as a biochemist's perspective on how long some of this stuff can actually last, stuff like collagen. Because we've been talking a bit about collagen and stuff like that today, but I think that's a whole other program which we need to uh, talk about and deal with at some point. Um, so there we go. Anyway, um, we're coming up towards the end of our time together here. Um, how about we go over to some thank yous and some questions, Sam, to uh, kind of round up the evening now? All righty. Um, well, we've had uh, a super chat coming from Neil for 10 British buckaroos. God bless you, Neil. Thank you so much. 
Um, uh, something has come in from Transbluency um, that I think we may need to clarify. Um, so Transbluency has said, I've gone back to the beginning of the presentation, that George Wald quote at the beginning, total misrepresentation. Um, George Wald quote. Oh, that was so way on, back at the beginning. Hold on. Where are so we? Glenn's, Glenn's presentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. George quote Wald. that comes from... Uh, Russ Miller and Jim Dopkins in their book, Darwinian Delusion. Did he say how it was uh, misrepresented? In what way? Um, no, he did. He does not. Um, so, so it might be, it might be with transparency. If you, um, if you look can up, possibly clar clarify. Look, um let me see if i can look up yeah i mean yeah, yeah it, it's yeah we'll need more clarification if we're going to ask answer that because i think it's just yes, a, a, a quote. but um yeah why don't we have some um if there are any questions there that we can uh yeah discuss sure. uh, yes, certainly need to there close is, down. yeah there's a question here from brother timothy uh question are you all familiar with the with a self-sustaining protein called a prion Crutchfield Jacobs disease. Uh, any thoughts, Diane? Prion. Uh, well, yeah, prion was a disease. Are, um, they're, they're, a, they're a distorted protein. Um, actually, the Crutchfield Jacobs disease is a fairly rare disease, but uh, a, a more uh, newsworthy one that you may have all heard of is mad cow disease. Ah, yes. Right. <laughs> Yes, that was. Uh, that isn't was, isn't it uh, like isn't a prion like a misfolded? Yeah, uh, so it, it's a protein oh, that's right. been misfolded. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so, in other words, it is um, a, a, what was started out as a biologically functioning protein, but the function of a protein depends on its three-dimensional shape. Remember my string mm -hmm. of. Um, uh, of colorful amino acids here. This could be bent into several different shapes, even with the same sequence of amino acids. So um, if, uh, if if they end up being bent into the wrong shape, instead of being useful, they can then be like literally like a spanner in the works. They, they'll cause mm. problems. Um, mm. <clears throat> so that, that's what prions are. So they're, they're, they're proteins that um, have lost their function because they're their shape has been changed and so they are now damaging cells rather than being incorporated into useful functions yes which shows so how specifically a, mm. it shows how specifically accurate all these things have to be to make life work oh yes mm. Mm. yeah good point all right any other questions that have popped up sam yes certainly um we've got a oh this is an interesting question uh this comes from jim jim p uh question how are chemicals affected by physical laws mm. well, well chemicals behave we... according to, to physical laws i mean if, if you um in terms of the um uh, electrostatic uh, interactions and things like that and they are made up of proteins electrons and, and neutrons and uh, the chemistry involves a, a thing you know electrons moving around um mm -hmm. 
sometimes from one one molecule to another to glue them together. So yes, the physics and chemistry are are interconnected. Um, they they have to behave according to the physical laws. Hmm. Mm. Very good. Yeah, well, it, it's an area we haven't actually touched on much uh, today. Haven't had a lot of time for it, but yeah. it's the whole idea of laws and rationality and mm. and even mathematics. I was actually watching Andy McIntosh's presentation at the uh, Rocks Cry Out conference, um, which which was a fantastic presentation. You can see it on YouTube if ever anyone wants to. And how mathematics is is not material, yet it is yes. a yeah mm. it, it is something that's outside of you know, just some sort of material <laughs> universe, but it is there and it's real, um, and it can mm. only come from someone that has designed it as such. So this whole this whole concept of rationality and mathematics and laws is outside the material universe, but they're very much something that had to be created. <clears throat> Yes, once the system is set up, it will work, um, mm. but it didn't. It doesn't set itself up. Mm. It's much like the whole that whole concept of, of like when you, we talk about natural selection and stuff as well. Mm. It's it something has to be there to exist. It doesn't explain how it came to be in the first place. <laughs> the very fact you have selection mm. means that something exists yeah. to select from. Mm. Um, but yes, very good. Okay. How about one I more? Have, Sorry, I go ahead. found the reference out of Russ Miller's book. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about this. this. It says, the utter failure of scientists to create life from non-life in the laboratory is a major problem for the philosophy of Darwinian-style evolution. What former Harvard professor and Nobel laureate George Wall said about Darwinists continuing on is very revealing. And then he makes the, the quote. Um, and George Wall is also the one who makes the quote that's often used about time as the hero. Ed Neeling made that yes. comment in there. He used that quote. Hmm. Wasn't it a, like a, um, I'm trying to think back to, yeah, it was, I think the original quote came from uh, New Science, not New Scientist, yeah. but Scientific American or something. I can't remember. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yes, sure it, it's regularly used by, by uh, quite a quite a number of evolutionists. But in fact, it's the opposite. We could do a whole program on that. In fact, time I is the enemy so, yeah. of evolution. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, but yeah. but yes, it is promoted as time being the hero of the plot. Um, <clears throat> yeah. When it's anyway, it's the opposite. Mm. Yeah. How about uh, how about we have one more question mm. before we begin to wrap up? In fact, uh, Sam, maybe if you want to finish up with some thank yous and, and the final yeah. question. Yeah, certainly, mm. certainly, certainly. So we've had something coming from Stacey H. Good to see you, Stacey. 499 US buffers. God bless everyone. Hope all are doing well. Um, oh, well, you. I'm okay. Mm. Joe's still wrangling with mm. illness and John is um, much prayer needed for John. Um, mm. He's uh, He's currently dealing with a, um, a lot of um, personal things. Um, so if prayers there would be much appreciated. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a super chat here from Ashley. Uh, 499 US buckaroos. Uh, thank you so much. That last interview was devastating. I hope you put it on YouTube. If you do, I will share with other science teachers. 
Yeah, it'll either be up on our streaming side or it'll be up on uh, YouTube. It's sort of up to John. Uh, but uh, one way or the other, it'll be available to be seen for sure. Mm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, well, you'll have to watch this space, Ashley. Watch this space. It's not it's not down to us. Um, uh, do you want to do one last question? Yeah, might as well. One last question and then we'll oh, wrap up for the evening. Right, um, this one comes in from Shogiwa. Uh, good to see you, Shogi. Uh, has Creation Research looked at science paper The Wow Signal of the Terrestrial Genetic Code Vladimir I. Shavaka and Maxim A. Makulkov? Some very <laughs> Russian names there. I think, uh, I, think I, I, I am familiar with it. I think they're um, from Kazakhstan, uh, if I remember correctly, I think. Um, I'm trying to think back to it's been a while since this. I think it's they said it was statistically so striking that it's it's um origin had to be that of of a supernatural creator or something like that. But it's been a while since of yes, but I think they preferred aliens rather than God. I think so, yeah. I think they were much yeah, more. Yes. Uh, yeah. I we, we did write about this quite a while ago. I'd have to go and look it up, but uh, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, it was. Uh, I remember. Yeah. I'm sure there was something yeah. about it. But anyway, the answer is we almost certainly have. Go to fact file, mm -hmm. creationfactfile.com, or go to creationresearch.net and click on fact file. And uh, there's bound to be something in there mm -hmm. if you stick in wow signal mm -hmm. or alien signal or something like that. I'm sure it will, yeah. uh, it'll pop up. But basically, yeah, that they recognized that there was. Um, information coming from somewhere that was not actually in um that, that cannot be accounted for just by the yeah. um the chemistry alone yes one of the other chats has mentioned panspermia i think uh, i noticed yes. there in the chat um, which is you know basically the same idea and uh really all you're doing is transferring the problem that we're, we're discussing here on this planet to it to right. some other planet yeah, so, uh, yes you're not, not doesn't solving solve anything. any problems <laughs> That's right. Exactly. All right. Um, it's time to round up now. It's been great. I think it went over a really good program tonight, which is wonderful. A reminder that next week, hopefully, we have John back, having not had him for the last two weeks. But, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> hopefully, we have John back for this, Good to Bad to Worse, where we talk about the sort of the full history of the planet. And we'll be using examples from fossils and examples from biology and all sorts of stuff. So that'll be good. Good to uh, the program will be good, but we'll, we'll be looking at Good to Bad to Worse. And then the following week, we have got our birthday celebrations, which is our second year of doing Creation Conversations, uh, one program a week for two years, which is very exciting to be able to celebrate. And our team has grown rather significantly in the last two years as well, which is wonderful. And we'll be recapping the most popular topic on Creation Conversations, as we have done pretty much every... Um, we, it's what we started out with and what we celebrated last birthday as well as a number of other times, but we'll be looking at climate change uh, once again and some of the really up-to-date bits and pieces that have been in the uh, media in the last little while. So that should be good. Make sure you do join us for those programs next week. Pray for um, John in particular uh, and uh, that he would be able to come and join us again. Pray um, for all of us who are recovering from 
illness, as well as uh, a very busy week that we have ahead of us trying to get everything sorted out uh, and continue with things like the museum projects that we have all around the world and so on and so forth. So thanks all very much. Just a quick plug from me um, before we go. Uh, I am on SFT next week to do mm -hmm. a talk. Uh, no, that's that just clicked multiple times. Uh, I'm doing a talk on SFT next week. Um, it's uh, well, we'll be discussing multiple things. Um, we'll be talking about the Genesis project, um, about the sort of the behind the scenes aspects of that, giving you an update on that. Uh, also going to be talking tech uh, about you know what kind of technology it takes to run. Uh, a Christian ministry online um, and also we're going to be talking about my new book that I'm writing as well about the sort of the themes of how to sort of find Jesus in in, in modern cinema um, so please do tune in for that I have posted the link in the chat but I will post it again um, so you can feel free to wrap up whilst I grab that great stuff thank you very much right well, it's been good. We've been going for two hours now, so it's about time that we uh, we close down. So, any final words from the from the team? Well, no. thanks for watching. Come back again next week. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, great stuff. A reminder that any um, questions or stuff that uh, we haven't managed to get to, there have been a couple, uh, we will deal with at a Q&A session probably the week after our birthday celebrations. I think it's about time that we have a specific Q&A session for there as well. Sam has just posted the link, so that's great. You've got a copy of that. Goodbye, everybody. God bless, and we will see you next time.